0: Optimal, minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now I just in my perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton.
1: Me
0: This episode is brought to you by Peloton, which I've been using probably for about a year now. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You can also do on-demand, which is what I do. We'll come back to that. So you don't have to worry about fitting classes into a busy schedule or making it to a studio or gym with a hectic or unpredictable commute. I, for instance, have a Peloton bike right in my master bedroom at home, and it's one of the first things I do many mornings. I wake up, I meditate for a bit, Then I knock out a short 20-minute ride in my undies, hard to do that at the gym, take a shower, and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's really convenient and has become something that I look forward to. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other riders across the country on an interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. There are also up to 14 new classes added every day with more than 8,000 classes on demand, and you can pick based on length, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, music, hip hop, rock and roll, or say low impact versus high intensity or interval. You can pick the class structure and style that works for you, and in my case, I quite like Matt Wilpers, and I tend to do on-demand and listen to a lot of and watch many of the same classes over and over, but I'm kind of promiscuous and also enjoy classes from a lot of the other instructors. They have Peloton, an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City with a whole range of styles and personalities, so you can find what you're in the mood for. You also get real-time metrics that you can use to track your performance over time, and that will help I would say catalyze you to beat your personal best. Now, that all sounds good, right? Gamification, yada, yada, yada. I didn't think that it would work for me or in any way incentivize me, but they really 100% hit the nail on the head. I was very, very impressed with how motivating it was. And it worked tremendously to keep me pushing, uh, which quite honestly takes a fair amount. I can get quite lazy, particularly with anything that edges on endurance, which is kind of more than five reps of anything for me. So... Check it out. Discover this cutting edge indoor cycling bike that brings the studio experience right to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited time offer. Go to onepeloton.com. That's O N E Peloton, P E L O T O N.com and enter the code TIM, all caps at checkout and get $100 off of accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. So get a great workout at home anytime you want check it out, go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIM to get started. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by Hello Monday, a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team. When I'm facing, say, a challenge at work, considering new career moves, or just trying to sort through my life, of course, like a lot of people, I look to my friends, family, and mentors for support. The kind of advice that tends to stick, though, out of all the things they might say or ask, tends to be simple and powerful. For example, I remember when Kyle Maynard, who's been on the podcast, echoed to me a lesson he learned from a very well-known CEO. And that was, when you ask people to rank anything from 1 to 10, including yourself, ask them to remove the number 7. And that means they have to choose between, in some cases, 6, which is a barely pass, so that's a no-go, or an eight, which is a strong endorsement. So you can use this when asking people to judge work, designs, give you feedback on writing, chapters. You can use it with waiters or waitresses in restaurants when asking how much they would recommend a given entree. And it's incredible how much clearer the signal becomes when you just make that one change and remove seven. So, Along those lines, Hello Monday is a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team filled with this kind of advice, the kind that stays with you, the kind that you can actually use. Each week, host Jesse Hempel sits down with featured guests ranging from people like Seth Myers, host of Late Night with Seth Myers, and Elizabeth Gilbert, bestselling author of Eat, Pray, Love, to uncover lessons you can apply to your career and to your life. For example... Elizabeth Gilbert talks about relieving creative pressure to get more done. And the way she tells the story is much more detailed. But as she was approaching her follow-up to Eat, Pray, Love, she tried to write. She realized after the fact, when she sat down with the first draft and started to cry, she realized she tried to write for six million people and it just wasn't working. She felt overwhelmed. And instead, she decided to focus on writing it to her 10 closest female friends. And she realized at the time she didn't know how to please millions of strangers, but she did know how to reach those specific 10 friends, which it turns out is exactly what I did after throwing away four early chapter drafts for the four hour work week. I took a very similar approach and wrote literally an email draft to two of my closest friends. So this type of stuff really, really works. And you should check it out. So find Elizabeth Gilbert's episode and other episodes from Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm so excited because I'm about to share with you an interview that I waited 20-plus years to do. Neil Gaiman... Neil Gaiman. Who's Neil Gaiman? Neil's been one of my favorite authors forever. I first became fascinated by his imagination with the Sandman comics, graphic novels in the 90s, so much so, in fact, that I imported Sandman versions from different countries to help me learn foreign languages. My love for his work grew from there, from Anansi Boys to The Graveyard Book, which happens to be my favorite audiobook of all time, read by Neil, to Neverwhere I've Never Been Disappointed. And Neil has won just about every award in every genre he's tackled, including Nebula and Hugo Awards, and his voice, as you will hear, is Radio Perfect Hypnotic. Since my very first podcast episode, back when this show did not even have a name, friends have asked me, who is on your list of dream guests? And Neil has always been in my top five. Oprah's another. We'll get to that another time. Sadly, Neil very rarely does interviews, but after close to a decade, I'm not making that up, of soft touches via Twitter and elsewhere, he finally agreed to sit down with me for around 90, 120 minutes, somewhere in there, and get into all the details I could have ever dreamed of, and more. I never thought it would actually happen, and it did. It's it's I'm still on cloud nine and find it very surreal, to be honest. And in any case, if you listen to even a few minutes of this, you'll understand why I'm such a fan. And I'm going to read uh, a bit more of his official bio, and then we're going to get right into it. But just listen to the range in this bio when it comes to creative fiction and non-fiction. Neil Gaiman is the best-selling author and creator of books, graphic novels, short stories, film, and television for all ages, including Neverwhere, Coraline, The Graveyard Book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, The View from the Cheap Seats, and The Sandman series of graphic novels. His fiction has received Newbery and Carnegie Medals and Hugo Nebula World Fantasy Bram Stoker and Will Eisner Awards, among many other awards and honors. His novelistic retelling of Norse myths, titled Norse Mythology, has been a phenomenon and an international best and he won his ninth audio award for that. That is for best narration by the author. Nine, nine audio awards. And you'll you'll get a taste of his voice and why people enjoy it so much. Recently, Gaiman wrote all six episodes of and has been the full-time showrunner for the forthcoming BBC Amazon Prime miniseries adaptation of Good Omens based on the beloved 1990 book he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett. Fantastic Fantastic book, and I've set up a redirect so you guys can find the trailer for this really easily if you just go to tim.blog forward slash omens. That's tim.blog forward slash omens. It'll point right to the trailer for this, which you guys should check out. Many of Gaiman's books and comics have been adapted for film and television, including Stardust, starring Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer, Coraline, an Academy Award nominee and the BAFTA winner for Best Animated Film, and How to Talk to Girls at Parties, a movie based on Gaiman's short story. The television series Lucifer is based on characters created by Gaiman and Sandman. His 2001 novel, American Gods, is a critically acclaimed Emmy-nominated TV series now entering its second season. In 2017, Neil Gaiman became a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. Originally from England, he lives in the United States where he is professor in the arts at Bard College. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Neil himself, Facebook forward slash Neil Gaiman and at neilgaiman.com. And without further ado, my apologies for the long intro, but it's very warranted in this case, given the excitement on my part. Here is Neil Gaiman. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have been hoping to have this conversation for years and if i flash back for you know 10 15 probably 20 plus years i've been reading your work i can't say that about many people i've ever met and i mean you've been
1: asking me incredibly <laughs> politely um, if i could do the podcast or anything vaguely you know sort of <laughs> Edging around it and giving me open invitations for a, for a good decade now. <laughs> this is true. Um, this and is true. I, uh, you know, and, and I love the fact we've managed to do the occasional tiny goofy
0: thing. I got <laughs> I got to do read a page of your book. That's right. That's right. You read a page of the book, which was incredible because I find your voice, as many people do, uh, rather hypnotic, <laughs> and. Then we got to do a very short uh, chapter in Tribe of Mentors, the last book. Yeah. Thank you very much for answering those questions. And uh, it's it's just such a, such a thrill to be able to spend time with you. I'm loving it. And I, th- I thought we could begin with the, the glorious beginnings. And maybe uh, for those people who can't see this, I'll give some context. I have not just one recorder but two, three, four different sets of audio. And that's in part because I was, uh, or am once bitten twice shy when it comes to audio. And then you shared one of your early days stories. What happened? So um,
1: when I was 15, I really wanted to meet and talk to writers and artists I admired. And I couldn't, figure out how you did this. I didn't know about conventions, if there were conventions back in you know, 1975, 76. Um, so I had a brilliant idea. I would start a magazine. The magazine, as far as I was concerned, didn't even have to exist. The fact that it went on to exist <laughs> was really fun. And we called it Metro, um, which was a name I came up with because it sounded like a magazine. it it didn't just sound like a magazine. It sounded like a magazine that you have heard of. And I love the fact that over the years, Metro magazines around the world actually do exist now. But in 1975, they didn't. But I could phone up and say from Metro magazine, and people would go, oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) I've heard of you. Um, (laughs) And, you know, our voices had broken. So over the phone, nobody knew that we were 15. (laughs) Um, And I remember interviewing... uh, Michael Moorcock, uh, who was an author whose work I loved with, with my friend Dave Dixon, who told me recently he just found the tape and is uh, threatening <laughs> to put it up as some kind of <laughs> glorious podcast, which I, I really hope he does. Fifteen-year-old um, Neil Gaiman and Dave Dixon interviewing Michael Moorcock. Um, but the the one that taught me my lesson was the... I think it was the second interview we did. Moorcock was the first. Um, And it was Roger Dean. And Roger Dean is an artist and designer, most famous back then for the covers of Yes albums, this beautiful sort of calligraphy and these floating islands and things like that. And I got talking to some kid on the train who said, oh, yeah, you know, I know Roger Dean. And so we phoned up Roger Dean's publisher, which was basically Roger Dean. I think they were called Dragon's Dream, and uh, said, you know, I'd like to interview Roger. Went down to Brighton. Um, I remember the sheer amazement and joy of these paintings that were, as far as I was concerned, iconic religious emblems they they were you know i I, and i didn't like yes very much in fact i didn't really like much of the music that he'd done covers to but i had a copy of his book views and just loved it there was a painting he did of some badges um there was just these things um it it felt very lord of the rings it felt very fantastical and there were these amazing paintings covered in dust uh, propped up against walls And we interviewed him. And at the end of the interview, I noticed that the tape wasn't going round, And got home, played it, and you can hear. There's 30 seconds of us talking. There's 30 seconds of us talking in higher and higher pitched voices, faster and faster, like mad chipmunks, and then it stops. (laughs) And that was the Roger Dean interview. And I... And the great thing about that was when, seven years later, I really was a journalist. I really was going around interviewing people. I was interviewing people for magazines that existed and, um, you know, had existed before. We decided to do the interviews and things. Um, I always carried spare batteries. I always carried spare tapes. Um, If I could you know at the point where i could afford to i even carried a spare micro cassette recorder just
0: in case just in case two is one and one is none as they say sometimes and so the god's the god's gifted you with a malfunction early exactly one good malfunction and you learn your lesson it is that pain <laughs> thing <laughs> and we were chatting before we sat down to record as I was gathering copious beverages, water and tea, and, and so on for us, I'm using the royal "us," I suppose, mostly for <laughs> me. And like I got water too. And we were talking about this location downtown where we're sitting, and I've I've decided in the last few years to use locations outside of my home for a lot of what I do because I've I found it. Uh, that is, it being sitting at my kitchen table doing a lot to sometimes produce a malaise. This Mm is this odd association or lack of dissociation between work and home. And I had read at one point that Maya Angelou, and I hope I'm getting that pronunciation right, would rent hotel rooms to work on a lot of uh, her writing. And uh, then you brought up another name. So um,
1: back in about 1997, I read an article by Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond books, about how he wrote the James Bond books. And you read this article and you realize something, which is, Ian Fleming did not enjoy the process of writing. Um, I was always fascinated by the fact that, that several of Roald Dahl's most famous short stories were plotted Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming would... Really? Yeah, he gave Dahl... (laughs) I no idea. The two best short story twists, which are lamb to the slaughter, where the woman kills her husband with a leg of lamb and then cooks it um, and feeds it to the detective who is going, I cannot figure out what he was hit with, uh, is an Ian Fleming plot. And so is the one about the evil antique dealer who finds this amazing antique um, in, you know, on some farm and decides to cheat the farmers and explains that, well, the thing isn't worth any money, but the legs, the legs are worth some money, so I'll, uh, I'll give you, uh, you know, 20 quid for the legs um, and is about to take away this million-pound uh, antique thing and the farmers helpfully rip off the legs for <laughs> and throw the rest of it away. They make this easier for you. <laughs> and, uh, and those plots were both Ian inflamings. And you start realizing, ah, you really don't like writing when you read his thing on how he wrote the James Bond books. Uh, you write a James Bond book in two weeks. You check into a hotel. You have to check into a hotel somewhere that you don't want to be. Otherwise, you might go out and walk around and become a tourist. You have to check into a not terribly nice hotel room. Otherwise, you might luxuriate and enjoy it. And instead, what you want to be is focused on getting out. And then you having nothing else to do in this town, in this place, you settle down and you write like a fiend. And you get your James Bond book written in two (laughs) weeks and you leave this horrible hotel room. And that was how he did it. And I have tried it a couple of times. I did it with the American draft of Neverwhere. That was the first Mm. one I ever tried. And I did the entire sort of American draft, which was a big second draft. The book had already been published in the UK, but my American editor wanted stuff done because she pointed out that the book as it existed was written for people who knew knew that Oxford Street was a big street with lots of shops on it, you know, it, it, or whatever. They, it was written for Brits and Londoners, mm-hmm. and she wanted something expanded. So I expanded it. Um, and I was in a room with... As far as I remember, no windows in the... I think it was a Marriott in the World Trade Center, and um, which is no longer there. But writing in that hotel room, you just wanted to be
0: out. <laughs> it, it's, it seems to me, and you can't believe everything you read on the Internet, so I, I want you to certainly fact-check me as needed, but that you, you also have or have had some internal rules so you can you can use your external environment to assist but but i read uh that and again feel free to correct but making rules the importance of making rules rules like you can sit here and write or you can sit here and do nothing but you can't sit here and do anything else
1: that that was always and still is when i go off to write that's my biggest rule could you speak to that yeah because um, I would go down to my lovely little gazebo at the bottom of the garden, sit down, and I'm absolutely allowed not to do anything. I'm allowed to sit at my desk. I'm allowed to stare out at the world. I'm allowed to do anything I like, as long as it isn't anything. I'm not allowed to do a crossword, not allowed to read a book allowed to phone a friend, not allowed to, you know, make a clay model of something. I, I, all I'm allowed to do is absolutely nothing or write. And what I love about that is I'm giving myself permission to write or not write. But writing is actually more interesting than doing nothing after a while. You know, you sort of sit there and You've been staring out the window now for five minutes and it kind of loses its charm. <laughs> You're going, well, actually, might as well write something. And um, and it's hard. I'm, as a writer, I'm more easily, you know, I'm distractible. Um, I have a three-year-old son. He is the epitome of cuteness and charm. He's, it's more fun playing with him than it is writing, which means if I'm going to be writing, I need to do it somewhere where I don't have a three-year-old son singing to me, asking me to read to him, demanding my attention. Um, and I think, that's a, I think it's a really just a solid rule for writers. It's like, yeah, you don't have to write. You have permission to not write. But you don't have permission
0: to do anything else. It reminds me of uh, another one of my favorite writers, you being the one who's sitting in front of me, uh, John McPhee, nonfiction writer, uh, who has spent much of his life in Princeton, New Jersey, but has written some incredible uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction. And I was lucky enough to take class with him a thousand years ago. And his his role was very similar, although he didn't state it explicitly. He would sit in front of his first as a young man typewriter and you could sit in front of the blank page and from 8am to 6pm with the exception of a break for lunch and swimming, it was the blank page or writing. Yeah. It was disallowed from doing anything else. Are there any other rules or practices that you also hold sacred or important for your writing process?
1: Uh, some of them
0: are just things for me.
1: For example, Um, most of the time, not always, I will do my first draft in fountain pen. Um, because I actually enjoy the process of writing with a fountain pen. I like the, um, I like filling a fountain pen. I like uncapping it. I like the weight of it in my hand. I, I like that thing. So I'll have a notebook. Um. I'll have a fountain pen, and I'll write. If I'm doing anything long, if I'm working on a novel, for example, I will always have two fountain pens on the go, at least with two different colored inks, at least. Because that way, I can see at a glance how much work I did that day. I can just look down and go, look at that, five pages in brown. I I wrote that half a page in black, that was not a good day. Um, Nine pages in blue, that was what a great day. And I, I, you can just sort of get a sense of, okay, are you, are you working? Are you making forward progress? Um, What's actually happening? And I also love that because emphasizes for me that nobody is ever meant to read your first draft. Your first draft can go way off the rails. Your first draft can absolutely go up in flames. It can You can change the age, gender, number of a character. Um, you can bring somebody dead back to life. Nobody ever needs to know anything that happens in your first draft is you telling the story to yourself. And then I'll sit down and type. And I'll put it onto a computer. And As far as I'm concerned, the second draft is where I try and make it look like I knew what I was doing all along.
0: Do you edit then as you're looking or translating from the first draft on the page to the computer? Or do you get it all down as is? in the computer and then edit on the computer. No, I I definitely,
1: that's my editing process. I figure that's my second draft, is typing it into the computer. And also, I love, um, so backing up a bit here. Um, When I was, what was I, 27, 28, in the days when we were still in typewriters, And there were just a handful of people with word processors, which were clunky things with discs, which didn't hold very much and stuff. I edited an anthology. And uh, enjoyed editing my anthology. And most of the stories that came in were about 3,000 words long. Move forward in time, not much. Five, six, seven years. Mid-90s. Everybody is now on computer. And I edited another short story anthology. And the stories that were coming in tended to be somewhere between six and 9,000 words long. And they didn't really have much more story than the 3,000-word ones. And I realized that what was happening is it's a, it's a sort of a computery thing, is if you're typing... Putting stuff down is work. If you've got a computer, adding stuff is not work. Choosing is work. So it sort of expands a bit like a guess. If you have two things you could say, you say both of them. If you're the stuff you want to add, you add it. And And I thought, okay, I have to not do that because otherwise my stuff is going to balloon and it will become gaseous and thin um so what i love if i've written something on a computer and i decide to lose a chunk it feels like i've lost work Hmm. if i delete a page and a half i feel like there's a page and a half that just went away and that that's a page and a half's worth of work i've just lost if i've been writing in a notebook and i'm typing it up and I can look at something and go, I don't need this page and a half, and I leave it out. I've just saved myself work, and it feels kind of like I'm I'm treating myself. So I'm just trying to always have in my head the idea that maybe I'm somehow on some cosmic level paying somebody by the word in order to be allowed to write. That if they're there, they, they should matter. They should mean
0: something. It's always important to me. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned distraction earlier, and your uh, dangerously adorable son, uh, which which I certainly agree with. Uh, I had read somewhere actually uh, well, before I get to that. This this might seem like a very very mundane question, but what type of notebooks do you prefer? Are they large, like legal pads? Are they leather bound? What type of notebooks do um, you with? When they came out,
1: I really liked, I've used a whole bunch of different ones. I bought big drawing ones, which actually turned out to be a bit too big. Well, I kind of liked how much I could see on the page. Uh, those were the ones I wrote Stardust and, um, and American Gods in, sort of, you know, big sized. But they weren't terribly portable. I went over to the Moleskines. And I loved them when they first came out. And then they dropped their paper quality. Hmm. And dropping paper quality doesn't matter unless you're writing in fountain pen. Because all of a sudden, it's bleeding through. And all of a sudden, you're writing on one page leaving a page blank because it's bled through and writing on the next page. Um, And Joe Hill, about uh, six or seven years ago, uh, Joe Hill, the the wonderful horror fantasy writer, um, suggested the Leuchtturm to me. And um, so my usual notebook right now is a Leuchtturm because... I really like the the way you can paginate stuff in them and the thickness of the paper and they're just like sort of moleskins but but the Porsche of moleskins they're (laughs) they're just better Um, and I also have been writing I wrote the graveyard book and I'm writing the current novel in a uh, these beautiful books that I bought in a stationery shop in Venice um, built into a bridge somewhere in Venice there's a a little stationery shop on a bridge and they have these beautiful leather bound blank books that just look like hardback books but they're blank pages and uh, I wrote the graveyard book in one of those, I bought four of them and now I'm using the next one on the next novel, and it may well go into another one, um, I'm not sure. And then at home, in, uh, I say at home, um, my house in Wisconsin, which is where my stuff is. You know, I've, I've got my, we live in Woodstock, um, but I have an entire life's worth of stuff still sitting in my house in. In Wisconsin and it it's become archives it's you know it's actually kind of fabulous having a house that is an archive um, but waiting for me in that house is a book that I bought for myself about 25 years ago and before I die I plan to write a novel in it um, and it's an accounts book from the mid-19th century. It's 500 pages long. Every page is, is numbered. Um, it's um, lined with, with accounts lines, but very faint, so it'll be nice to write a book in it. And it is engineered so that every single page lies flat. And it's huge, and it's heavy, and it just looks like a book that you know Dickens or somebody would have written a novel in. And I've just been waiting until I have an idea that is huge and weird and Dickensian enough. And um, whether or not I actually get to write it in dip pen, I'm not sure. But I definitely want to write it in in a sort of um, old. Victorian, something slightly copper one of those old flex nib pens that they stopped making when carbon paper came in, um, just so I can get that kind of spidery Victorian handwriting.
0: I'm just imagining you putting pen to the first page when you finish the first page and what that will feel like. That's going to be a good day.
1: It will, it will be either a good day or an incredibly bad day. So I'll get to the end of the first page. And it's, oh, no, I have this pristine... But it is, it, it is the the, thing that I tell young writers, and by young writers, a young writer can be any age. You just have to be starting out, um, which is anything you do can be fixed. What you cannot fix is is the perfection of a blank page. Mm. What you cannot fix is that pristine, unsullied whiteness of a screen or a page with nothing on it because there's nothing there to fix.
0: You mentioned a word, and it might be that I'm a little slow-moving because I'm from Long Island, but Leichtum, how do you spell that word? Uh, Ah,
1: L-E-I-C-H... I think it's T-T-U-R-M... And I ah, got it. Yep. And then 1917, I think, is their, their, uh, their Twitter handle
0: is definitely leichtorm1917.
1: Leichtum. And I'll put that
0: in the show notes for folks so you'll be able to find it. Since you gave me, uh, and I'm not intending to turn this episode into a shopping list, but <laughs> I've never used fountain pens. Really? I have not. And my my, uh, assistant, my dear assistant uh, does. She loves using fountain pens. She enjoys the act. I've I've had uh, a few sloppy false starts and then been rather impatient. But if I wanted to give it a shot, are there any particular fountain pens or criteria that you would use in picking Um, a good pen? You know, the biggest criteria I would use
1: in picking, um, if you have the choice. Is go somewhere like New York's Fountain Pen Hospital? Um, is that a real place? It's a real place. They have a, <laughs> it's called the Fountain Pen Hospital. They sell lots of new pens. They recondition old pens. They they look after pens for you, um, and try them out. Because the lovely thing about fountain pens is they are personal. You 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 go no no no, and then you find the one. Um, I tend to suggest to people who are um, just nervously, you know, I've never used a fountain pen, what should I do? And I will point them at Lamy, L-A-M-Y, who have some fabulous starter pens. And they're not very expensive, and they're good. Uh, They do a pen called the, the Safari, but they have a bunch of good, Good starter pens, and they're just nice to to get into the idea of Do I like doing this? Um, the um, let's see, what am I using right now? Um, what have I got in here? I've got so um, this one here is a Pilot. Um, it's a Namiki, and it's a flexi nib. Ever so slightly, when you put down weight on it, the uh, the nib will spread. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful pen. Um, the, that one's a Pilot, I think. This one here is the Namiki, and it's really weird because Namiki is Pilot. So I, I don't quite understand that. This is a f- maybe it's a sort of Toyota Lexus thing. I think it is. It's that kind of thing. Um, this one here is called a falcon. And again, you put a little bit of weight on it and the line will just spread and thicken, which is part of the fun um, of fountain pens. Um, and I will just, you know, I'll, I'll go and play. Uh, there's a lovely Italian one. I got my, a- my agent. I did a thing some years ago when I realized that I was losing a lot of actual writing time to signing foreign contracts and um, this is for books this is for books or occasionally you know for stories or for things being reprinted around the world and the contracts would come in and there would be big sheaves of them because I get printed all around the world and foreign contracts a lot of them you have to sign a lot you have to do a lot of initialing and and I would sit there going I have just spent 90 minutes signing a pile of contracts and I love that I got to sign it but so I contacted my agent I said can I give you like power of attorney would you mind just can you just sign these things for me and she's like absolutely great so I got her she'd never used a fountain pen and I got her a fountain pen I actually went to Uh, the New York Fountain Pen Hospital with her and did the thing of showing her pens and going, what do you like? And then, (laughs) and I got her a Visconti, uh, which is just these lovely Italian pens. Um, And mostly I love the sort of the slightly fetishistic bit of having bottles of beautifully colored ink. When you start talking to fountain pen people, they 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 really they pretend to be interested in what pen you like, but they don't care because they found their own pens that they love, and they say, "What do you use?" And I, you know, I use Pilot Eight for signing, pen. and and I actually now I bought a Pilot Eight Two Three because um, it's just a fantastic signing pen. It's a workhorse. It keeps going, and I got one in twenty twelve. And it was my signing pen. I signed through Ocean at the end of the lane. You know, before the book had come out, I had already pre-signed. You know, written my signature twenty thousand times with this pen. (laughs) I've seen footage of you icing your hand after some signings. (laughs) That was the signing tour that I really got into icing my hand because and wrist and arm, Um, and. You know, I I did the numbers, and as far as I can tell, I have signed about one and a half million signatures with that pen, uh, which remained, and I had to send it off to pilot at one point, not because the nib was in trouble, but because the the plunger mechanism was starting to stick, and they fixed it for me and sent it back. And then my three-year-old son found a place behind a cast-iron fireplace... Uh, in our house in Woodstock, where if you just insert your father's Pilot 823 <laughs> pen, which you have found on the table, just to see if it would go in there, you can actually guarantee that nobody, w- without disassembling the house, I mean, we actually have to take the entire house apart um, to uninstall a cast iron fireplace from 1913 to get at the pen. So I've got, and that is that pen now has been given...
0: As a sacrifice in the house, gods, and I need to get a new one. (laughs) It it strikes me, uh, at least it it seems as we're talking, that many of the decisions you've made, the tools you've found and enlisted, uh, act to make not writing unappealing, or at least boring after five minutes, and and to sort of enhance the act of writing to make it something that is enjoyable. I don't, I don't know that's, if that's true. That is
1: true, but they also exist for another reason, which is kind of weird, which is to try and trivialize what I'm doing and not make it important and freighted down with weight because that paralyzes me. Hmm. Um, when I started writing, I had a typewriter. It was a manual typewriter. When I sold my first book, I had the money to buy an electric typewriter. Um, what was that first book? Uh, gosh. I actually don't remember whether I bought the electric typewriter with the money from a book called Ghastly Beyond Belief, a book of science fiction and fantasy quotations I did with Kim Newman, or whether I did it, whether it was... Um, for uh, the Duran Duran biography that I did. Either way, I was just 23. And, um, and what I would do back then is I would do my rough draft on scrap paper, single-spaced, so that it couldn't be used. Um, and also so that I could get as many words on and, you know, paper was expensive. Um, and then... So, so I could always do that. And I remember the joy of getting my first computer and just the idea that I wasn't making paper dirty. Nothing mattered until I pressed print. And that was absolutely and utterly liberating. Um, And then, you know, a decade on, picking up a notebook. It was for Stardust, of which I decided that I wanted the rhythms of Stardust to be sort of very antiquated rhythms. And I thought, I, there's probably a difference to the way that one writes with a fountain pen. Um, 17th century writing, 17th, 18th century writing, um, you notice tends to go in very, very long sentences and long paragraphs. And I, I my theory about this is that one reason why you get this is because you're using dip pens and if you pause, they they dry up. So you just have to kind of keep going. It forces you to do a kind of writing where you're just you're going for a very long sentence and you're gonna go for a long paragraph and you're gonna Keep moving in this thing, and you're sort of thinking ahead. Um, with, if you're writing on a computer, you'll think of the sort of thing that you mean, and write that down, and then look at it, and then fiddle with it, and get it to be the thing that you mean. If you're writing in fountain pen, if you do that, you just wind up with a page covered with crossings out. So it's actually so much easier um, to just sort of think a little bit more. You, you you slow up a bit, but you're thinking the sentence through to the end. And then, then you start writing. You write that, and then you pause, and then you write the next one. Um, at least that was the way that I, I hypothesized I might be writing. And I wanted uh stardust to feel like it had been written in the late 1920s um and i thought well to do that i should probably get myself a uh, a fountain pen and a book and that so that was how i started writing that and again what i loved was suddenly feeling liberated it was like ah i'm not actually making words are not going down in phosphor on a computer screen
0: the, this trivializing is um I think very, very important, uh, and I'd love to, to dig into it a little bit because this is um, something that's come up quite a bit initially very unexpectedly with, with people I interview on the podcast. I remember having a conversation with Sean White, a you know, legendary snowboarder, and I asked him what he said to himself, what was his internal monologue or dialogue right before the gate opened for the last run in the Olympics for the gold medal, and his answer was, who cares? Yeah. which surprised me. And he said, yeah, because if, if, in effect, you know, if I apply an incredible amount of weight to myself, it's going to do nothing but handicap me. And you do see, or there are many examples of, of writers, of musicians who have sort of crumbled with sophomore syndrome after a success and had great difficulty put it, putting out work. You've put out a lot of very, very good work. I've, I've read and listened to and watched a lot of your work. What are other things you do to remove that weight, if anything? Are there things you say to yourself when you commit to writing a book, when you, when you sign the agreement with the publisher for yet another novel? Um, is, is there any other advice that you would give or any other things that you do that help to remove the sort of psychological uh, performance anxiety? Well, if you're me, you
1: tend to do the things that are not actually... Um financially sensible but make life easier i write i like writing things that nobody's waiting for it's much more stressful writing things that people actually are waiting for that people care about um it's why it felt wonderful to follow american gods up with Coraline. Nobody even knew that I wanted to be a kid's author. And it was an odd kind of thing to be. And I've just written this giant novel that's won all of the awards. And it's incredibly adult. And it's thick. And it's a proper book. And look, I got the Hugo. And look, I got the Nebula. And so on and so forth. And then um, here's a book nobody's waiting for
0: about did you work on so you worked on that before anyone knew you in, in other words you hadn't set expectations caroline was written i thought caroline was unpublishable in fact i was
1: told it was initially um and uh i i started it for my kids my daughter in particular holly um i showed it to an English editor who told me it was completely unpublishable. Uh, we moved to America. Um, the idea was that I was writing it in my own time, but I didn't have any own time. Somewhere in there, I sent it to my friend Jane Yolan. I mentioned to Jane, who was an amazing children's um, author, but also at the time was editing a line of books and she showed it to, she wanted to buy it, and the people upstairs at the publishing house said, absolutely not. And, and you know, this was just the first third of Caroline. It hadn't even got bad yet. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and I put it away. And then a few years on, I looked around and realized that I now had another daughter. I now had Maddie, and she was a baby, and she was getting bigger, and if I didn't finish that book, you know, this, this book I started for Holly, and now Holly's too old almost, and and I needed to finish it. So I sent it to my new editor, but I sent it to my adult editor. I didn't have a children's editor. Um, Jennifer Hershey at... uh at trying to remember. Were we at HarperCollins at the time, or... Was it still Avon? I think it was still Avon. It hadn't yet been. Avon got bought by HarperCollins, which is how I became a HarperCollins author. Um, And she read it and she called me up and she said, This is great. What happens next? And I said, Send me a contract and we will both find out. (laughs) So bless her, she did. And so I went back to writing it because now it was actually something that actually had a delivery date attached. And I did not have the time to write it in. It wasn't like I had more time. And I remember what I did was I had a notebook by the side of my bed. And instead of reading three or four pages a night and then turning off the light and going to sleep, I would write maybe 50 words of Caroline. Which doesn't seem much. Right before bed. Right before bed. So I wasn't writing, uh, reading before bed, I was just writing before bed. But I'd go to bed and I would reread what I'd written on Caroline and I would do, you know, five or six lines of Caroline. Um but if you do it that way, you know, you've written a page a week. And so it 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 kept moving forward. And then we went on a cruise, a fundraising cruise for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which is a First Amendment thing. And I was working on American Gods, and I did not pack, due to a packing error, the American Gods notebooks. But I did have the Caroline book with me. So on that cruise, I got to write quite a bit more Coraline and then uh, a couple of months later I was starting to despair of ever finishing American Gods because I'd been writing it by that point for at least 18 months and figured that I had about a year to go and uh, just said fuck it and wrote Coraline and just finished it and sent it off to my publisher and it's like here is a book you can publish this and they're like that's great, but we'll, we'll wait for American guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you tend to work on multiple projects
1: at once? Is I that- used to. I used to be really good at working on multiple projects at once. I think I have to start... Um, I think I have to start accepting that I'm not as good anymore at that. Um, what does that mean? It means that in the old days, when I was young, I would have at least three things on the go, which was great because if I got stuck on any one of them, I would do the other. Um, Even when I was writing American Gods, I would always have the next of the sort of the Coming to America short stories in my head. So if I got stuck on Shadow, I would just take a week and I'd do one of the Coming to America stories and then I go back to shadow again. And But these days, I don't think I'm as good at that anymore. I, I think I am. Um, I think it's great to have three or four things going on. But there is that point where I start looking at myself and going, actually, I'm getting less done. I'm not doing that thing where I get stuck on project day, so I just immediately over to project b it takes me a little ramping up time to get to the headspace now project b and at the point where i have projects a b c and d all waiting for me what i do is look at them make a noise like lurch from the adams family you know one of those oh, kind of noises and i go off and make a cup of tea and play with ash or something um so, I think, actually, I, it's one of those things where you just know thyself. I think I now have to start going, no, just just one thing at a time. Also, Which also means I am, I'm going to have to say no to more introductions and things. Yeah. I, and I love doing introductions. I, 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 I,
0: introductions, I am, you mean writing introductions?
1: Writing introductions. Writing introductions to other people's work. Writing introductions and essays and things where you go here is a thing i love i want to i can get it to the world i can tell people why i love this thing and maybe they'll discover it and every now and then and you know sometimes you know your introduction makes no real difference in the scheme of things um and then sometimes you know james thurber um I was told I could bring, you know, that, that they would bring the, the 13 clocks back into print if I wrote an introduction to it. So I was like, yes, I'm writing an introduction to it. And then because it has an introduction by me, I've run into many hundreds of people who I assume are representatives of thousands of people um, over the years who said, you know, I, I picked up that book because your name was on the cover and oh my God, it's become my favorite book. You know, I read it to my kids. It's amazing.
0: And I go, good. That's that's what it's for. That's why you do this. You mentioned uh, writing right before bed. So, so I'd love to talk about the, maybe not the scheduling, but the timing of writing. So I was was doing prep for this conversation and came across an interview in which you said that for, for nonfiction, you can kind of, write wherever it happens to fall. If it's a script or something else, but that for novels, very often you tend to write between, say, 1 and 6 p.m., where you'll handle email, maybe writing a blog post and so on in the morning. And uh, I'd love to chat about that because uh, many of the writers I've spoken to, and I'm sure it's, it differs person to person, but tend to write either very late or very early because they feel I, like they avoid distraction.
1: When I started out... Um, from from the age of about 22 when I was a young journalist 26 27 a starting out comics writer um, you know all, all through there I was a late 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 night writer um, nothing really happened until the kids were in bed nine o'clock I might have Fafter out a little bit during the day, but now it's all done, and now I'm getting down to work. And um, at two or three o'clock in the morning, and I'm writing in England at this point, I may phone a friend in America just to talk enough to make sure that I'm awake. <laughs> you know, you, um, but so that's what I did. And um, And I was a smoker and a coffee drinker, and it was great. I moved to America in 92, gave up smoking in 93, stopped drinking coffee, went over to tea, um, and tried being a late-night writer, tried carrying on being a late-night writer, and gradually realized that I wasn't really anymore. What tended to happen was somewhere around 1 in the morning, I'd be writing away, and then I would lift my head from the keyboard at 4 o'clock in the morning and have 3,000 pages of the letter M <laughs> and um, just go, okay, that this doesn't really work anymore for me. And then I started rescheduling, um, trying different things out. Part of... What I discovered, particularly about being a novelist, is writing a novel works best if you can do the same day over and over again. Hmm. Um, the closer you can come to just Groundhog Day, you just repeat that day. You you set up a day that works for yourself. Um, you know, I, I the last novel that I actually wrote um I was at Tori Amos's wonderful house in Florida she has this lovely sort of house on the water that she's lent me many times to go and write in um and I went down there and I would get up in the morning I would go for a jog come back um do my yoga uh get dressed uh, and, and get in the car, drive down to a little cafe where there were just enough people around that I knew that other people existed, but nobody that I would ever be tempted to talk to. And I would order myself a cup of, large cup of green tea, sit in a corner and just start writing. And I would do that day over and over and over and over and you know a couple of months later looked up and and I had the ocean at the end of the lane which was only meant to have been a short story anyway it just kept going um and I I, that I think works really really well I also think that the the most important thing for human beings is to be aware of the change you know the The biggest problem we run into is going, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, this is how I function, while failing to notice that you don't do that anymore. I'm perfectly aware that I may one day become one of those people who wakes up early in the morning and goes and writes. Um, My friend Gene Wolfe, who is um, now in his late 80s and is one of um, you know, the finest writers that America has, um, for years was a an editor of a magazine about factories. I think it was called Plant Engineering. And so he'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and write for an hour um, before anything else, before the day started, before he had to leave for work, and before anybody else was up and that was how he did it. Um, I cannot imagine getting up in the morning and just writing. That's not how my head works. I need a while to get here. Um, But I can absolutely imagine that one day I'll, I'll have become one of those morning writers from having been a late night writer in my youth and an afternoon writer in my, in my middle age, in my dotage, I could
0: absolutely become a morning writer. <laughs> in your dotage. Uh, I think that's going to take a while. Uh, I do want to ask you a question related to a name that came up a little earlier. And that is, uh, uh, and this of course, I think I'm getting right, because it comes from a reliable source, which is your blog. <laughs> and My blog is
1: a pretty reliable source. I think it's so very
0: reliable. And uh, for those, those who know your work outside of the blog, I'd really encourage you to to read some of your work on the blog. Uh, there's some really touching personal work, uh, one in particular about uh, your gorgeous white dog whose name I'm, I'm currently... Just in such a beautiful piece uh, that, it, in fact, um, I owe you thanks for because it led, in, in part, there are many factors, but to me getting my first dog uh, as an adult, Molly, which I put off for decades. So thank you for that. But this question, beautiful piece, is, is related to Holly. So, and I'm going to use this as a very sneaky way to ask you a question that you would probably dislike being asked. <laughs> and it involves 57-year-olds. So my understanding is you were convinced to speak to your daughter's class about where ideas come from. And uh, what, I, what I noted here, I'm not going to ask it that way, but the, the line that stuck out was you get ideas when you ask yourself simple questions. Right? What if dot, dot, dot? What if you woke up with wings? If only, if only real life was like it is in Hollywood musicals. I wonder dot, dot, dot. If this goes on, this is one I really liked. You know, If this goes on, telephones are going to start talking to each other and cut out the middleman. Wouldn't it be interesting if dot, dot, dot? Uh, and, and the... The question I'm going to ask as a follow-up doesn't have to map perfectly to this, but uh, I would love to hear the Genesis story of The Graveyard Book. And the reason I ask about that book specifically is that it is my my absolute favorite uh, fiction audiobook of all time. And it is, it is. I remember the exact moment when I finished The Graveyard Book in audio and there are multiple versions, people have asked me. I have not listened to the ensemble version. and so, I'm sure it's spectacular, but not, not to sound creepy, I do find your voice very soothing. Um, and I finished it as my plane was, um, not my plane, let me rephrase, as a plane was uh, landing and had a few minutes before we landed and I thought about restarting the book. So it's, it's, it's had a, a wonderful place in my heart, in my mind. Where did that book come from?
1: So actually, I can give a slightly better answer to that now than I could have done a year ago, or I have done for previous years, because I found something accidentally uh, recently, um, which was uh, which gave me an insight into stuff on it. So I was twenty-five years old. Um, it would have been nineteen eighty four, eighty five, 85, maybe even into 86. Um, I was living in Sussex in a little town in a very tall house. Um, my dad owned the house. Uh, actually what he owned was a shop underneath, but the house sort of came, came with it. And because little old English towns go back, For a long time, the house was at least 300 years old. Um, And it was across a little lane from a country graveyard. And the house was incredibly tall and incredibly thin. You get a couple of rooms and then you get stairs. And I had a son who at that point was two years old. Um, And his favorite thing was his little tricycle. And the problem with little tricycles is you cannot ride them around houses like that. Otherwise, you die. You hit the (laughs) stairs and you die. Um, So every day, I would take him and his little tricycle over the road to this little churchyard. And he would pedal happily round and round the paths um, through the gravestones. And I remember just the the thought process. I remember going, he looks so happy here. He looks really comfortable. There is something very sweet about a little kid riding a tricycle through a graveyard. And I thought, I could do a story about it. Wouldn't it be fun to do a story about that? You could do a story like, a, it would be like, you know, a kid in a graveyard getting brought up by dead people. And then I thought, actually... Kipling already kind of did that once with the Jungle Book, which is a kid in a jungle being brought up by wild animals and teaching him the things that wild animals know. So I would have to have a kid in a graveyard being taught the things that dead people know. And I went up to my office, my little office, but sat down at my typewriter and started to write. Now, when I've told people this in the past, I've said I wrote a couple of pages and realized that it wasn't good enough. And I was wrong. I actually wrote um, an entire first chapter, I discovered. Because about a year ago, looking for something else, I found it. And it wasn't very good. What was fascinating and delightful about it was the portrait of the kid, which was very obviously a really actually looking back and a quite good pen portrait of my son Mike, who is now a that, th- you did, that you did that you know I'm describing the baby and I only knew one so so mm-hmm. it's it's Mike, um, and that was really interesting. But story doesn't work and I think I, I forget I think I've got a um. There's, this, there's a demon in it. I don't have um, who I think is the person who winds up being the person who, who kind of accepts him into the graveyard. Um, you know, nothing's quite right, but the, there's a central idea there. But I wrote, I remember writing that and just going, okay, this is a better idea than I am a writer. Hmm. So I need to put this off. And about a decade later, I came back, tried it again. And this time, you know, at least according to memory, it was only a couple of pages. And again, I went, oh, no, still not good enough for this.
0: May I pause for one second? Yeah. You must have ideas for potential stories all the time
1: yeah but this was different this was one where i knew i knew it had legs and i knew it was real and i knew it was good um and in fact you know it was interesting there was a point where i thought i wasn't gonna do it and I kind of gave the idea to Terry Pratchett. We'd been, we'd had our photos taken in a graveyard, and it would, we were talking about graveyards and kids. And I said, "Well, there's this book that I was going to write, and this is what I was going to do in it." And what is lovely is Terry didn't do any of that exactly, but he took, he wrote a book called Johnny and the Dead, which was sort of taking some of the stuff, but it wasn't close enough that I couldn't then still do my story. Um, but what was great is I, I knew that this was still important and I still wanted to tell the story. And over the years, I would just let it accumulate. And finally, um, in about 2003, I finished writing, I think it was Nancy Boys, and I, I th- Which
0: I also listened to on, on audio ah lenny henry isn't he brilliant incredible incredible
1: such a great read um and i got to the end of Anansi Boys, and i thought you know i i don't think i'm getting any better i think this is now as a writer i'm probably me that's probably it i may improve you know a tiny bit but it's not going to be the leaps and bounds that i know that i was so I have absolutely no excuse for putting off the graveyard book. But when I've started the other two times and it didn't work, I started with chapter one. I'm going to start right in the middle. And I wrote the first two pages of um, of, of The Witch's Headstone, chapter four. And... Did emotionally exactly the same thing I always do. I, I had always done at that point with the graveyard book, which is it's just not good enough. It's not good enough. My daughter Maddie, because at this point, we're, on, we're in the Cayman Islands on a small holiday, me, Maddie, and Holly. Maddie comes out the sea, wanders over to me, and says, what are, you, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a story. She says, read it to me. So I read her the first page and a half that I'd written, and she said, what happens next? So I kept going. And I think I would have, I would absolutely have been capable of giving up and failing at that point, except Maddie wanted to know what happened next. So I kept writing. And by the end of that, I'd written a story that felt like it worked. I had the tone. I had the voice. I had Silas. I had all of that stuff. What was, a great character, by the way. He's so lovely. Silas. And then I started at the beginning. And I, and the, the the one thing that I have no idea where it came from, because it was just sitting in the notebook, yeah. when I came to start, it's like I'd written it at some point in the previous five years, knowing that it would be, you know, knowing that I would have to start at some point was just the line, there was a hand in the darkness and it held a knife. And Mm. knowing that that was the first line of the story. And feeling kind of, you know, having very mixed feelings about that because going, well, on the whole, this story is going to be very loving, it's going to be very tender it's going to be about growth, it's going to be about families, it's going to be about villages, it's going to be about people but the first few pages are going to be
0: absolutely terrifying and that was the first line Yeah, yeah, I think you've certainly delivered on the first few pages being very very terrifying Uh, I'm going to go back and listen to that again Maybe I'll try Ensemble this time around.
1: The Ensemble is real. I mean, you know, I... Um, and I'm not just saying this because, for me, you know, listening to one of my own audiobooks is a lot like <laughs> back when you were young and we had answering <laughs> machines and you would be listening to the messages people had left for you and then you'd suddenly hit your own voice. And it's just like, no, I don't sound like that. Um, but I... But it's Derek Jacobi, who is one of England's greatest actors as the narrator. You, the cast of people like Miriam Margolis, Reese
0: Shearsmith, just this fabulous cast. So You mentioned a name that I was planning on bringing up anyway, and that is Terry Pratchett. Yeah. And I think many people who, uh, at least in the United States, are less familiar with Terry than perhaps they, they should be. Uh, could you... Tell us who Terry is and how you first met. Terry Pratchett, um, later
1: Sir Terry Pratchett, was an English writer um, who died in March 2015. Um, He was a humorist, a satirist, best known for the Discworld novels set on a flat earth which is on the back of uh, four elephants, on the back of an enormous turtle swimming through space. And uh, he was my friend. Um, Terry and I met when his first book, first Discworld book, The Color of Magic, was due to come out in paperback. And uh, we met for years and years we would tell everybody that we met in a Chinese restaurant. And uh, again, a few years ago, I found my desk diary from 1985. And I thought, ah, there's Terry and me meeting in February uh, 1985. I wonder which um, Chinese restaurant it was. And it turned out we actually met on like the 28th of January, and it was Bertorelli's Italian restaurant in is it Good Street? I think it was Good Street. Um, proving that memory is gloriously fallible. Um, embarrassingly so, since I'd actually filmed a piece to camera in a Chinese restaurant um, <laughs> about <laughs> Terry's passing. Um, but it, it's, I, you know, I was a young journalist. Uh, Terry at the time was working as the press officer for the... Uh, Central Electricity Board in the UK and um, we hit it off in a way that's just that sort of thing where you go, oh, you have the same kind of mind that I have not exactly, but the Venn diagram of overlap is it was the point where we got onto the subject of grimoires of occult books um, and Terry mentioned that he had come up with one called the Necro the book of the telephone numbers of the dead and I said that's really weird I've just come up with one called the Lever Fulvarum Paganarum the book of yellow colored pages and it's going oh We have the same kind of head that goes to the same kind of places. And we became friendlier, friendlier. After a while, Terry would start sending me his books to read as he was writing them. Um, You know, a a floppy disk would arrive and it would have 30,000 words on it of a novel Or my phone would ring, and Terry would say, Hello, it's me. So, which is funnier? (laughs) (laughs) And he'd just be writing, and he'd want somebody to talk to. So, I had written um, a book called Don't Panic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion, uh, which was great. I got to work with Douglas Adams. I got to rummage through Douglas's filing cabinets and obscurity stuff i'd, I'd written the whole book of, of who douglas was and what hitchhikers was and i realized by the end of it that i could write in that style classic english humor with funny footnotes and things like that that was it was something i could do and i had an idea for a book inspired really by um reading the jew of malta hmm. i've been reading uh, marlowe's the jew of malta and there's just a line in it where these evil jews meet and they compare evil that they've done and i thought you know you could do that scene with demons and it would be really nice if You've got demon number one, who's done lots of evil. Demon number two has done lots of evil. And even demon number three, who just hasn't really, you know. <laughs> and that was the start. Uh, so I wrote, and I had this idea about a baby swap, um, kind of like the omen, but it all goes wrong and it becomes a nice kid. So I wrote 5,000 words of... Um, this thing and I sent it to a few friends to look at and then Sandman and Books of Magic took over my life and my time and didn't really think about it I knew that it was a thing and I knew I'd get to it one day and then I got a phone call from Terry how much later was this maybe eight months nine months Mm -hmm. and he says yeah that that thing you sent me are you doing anything with it and I said well no I'm doing Sandman I'm doing Books of Magic he said well I know what happens next. So either sell me the idea and what you've written so far, or we can write it together. Now, as far as I was concerned, that was a lot like Michelangelo ringing you up and saying, yeah, do you want to paint a ceiling together this weekend? You know, you're going, (laughs) I I loved Terry's craft. Uh, Hmm. Terry became somewhere in there before the arrival of J.K. Rowling, the best-selling novelist in the UK. I mean, he tens was of
0: millions of copies. Millions
1: upon millions of copies. Um, this was before that. This was, you know, he just retired from um, the, the electricity board to become a full-time writer. I knew how good he was. And I'm like, this is a fabulous apprenticeship. So, even though I didn't have the time, I said yes. And my life, you know, I look back on it, I'm just really glad that I was 27, 28 when I was doing this because I couldn't do it now. I mean, just physically and mentally, couldn't do it now. But I would write Sandman until midnight. I would write the Books of Magic from midnight until about 230 and I would write good omens from 2.30 until about 6 a.m. And then I would get up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and my answering answering machine would have a little blinking light on it and I would press the button and the tape would rewind and then Terry Pratchett's voice would come out of it and he'd go, get up, get up, you bastard. I've just written a good bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was... Uh, so that was that was the process of writing. It was very fast, very mad. Um, that was the first draft. second draft took us took us much longer. Um, but you know we we had good omens. We had this wonderful, incredibly collaborative book. Um, it was almost immediately bought by Hollywood, and Terry and I went out and had one of those hellish, awful Hollywood experiences that you laugh at when other people tell you in their stories about them because you're like, it can't be that bad. And it's like, no, it really is that bad. And it really was <laughs> that bad. Um, and then over the years, Terry Gilliam tried to make it into a film, which we, we love the idea of. Uh, then we were going to do it as a tv series and we couldn't really find somebody to adapt it and eventually terry terry and i had a deal that we would never do anything individually Hmm. on good omens it had to be together or not at all and then one day he emailed me and uh he said look you have to do this you have to do this because you're the only other person who has the same amount of love for and understanding of the old girl that I have and I want to see it before the lights go out and then and I said okay and then Terry died which meant that now it had become this sort of last request and if the upcoming Good Omen series is good which I believe it is. A lot of what makes it good, a lot of what... Because I was the showrunner. I wrote it and I showran it. But I think what makes it good is I wasn't prepared to compromise on it. And I am normally very prepared to compromise. I'm encouraging when other people want to bring ideas to the table, I'm like, yeah, go do something fun with this. I've already done the book, or whatever. But in this case, I had a Terry Pratchett in the back of my head, who I had to please. And, you know, the producers would say, well, Neil, I know you've written this sequence where Agnes Nutter, the witch, is taken out and burned, and it's, you know, we have villagers, and we have... It's the 1640s, and you've got a giant bonfire and an explosion and all of this kind of stuff. And, and um, we thought we could save a lot of money and do it just as well if we had woodcuts of what happened and the narrator telling the story. And I would be like, OK. And then I would stop, and I would think, what would Terry think about that? I'm like, Terry? would have nothing polite to say about any of these people. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry. We're, we're going to have to do it the way I wrote it and the way it is in the book. We're not doing it with woodcuts. And um, and it was like that all the way through. It was like, you know, just trying to hold the line and make this thing that Terry would have been proud of and using, using stuff that we came up with um, in the book, using stuff that we'd come up with talking after the book, stuff that we would have put into the next book if there ever had been one, um, and just making it all all something that Terry would have been proud of. Um, and it's been really wonderful. Uh, this South by Southwest has been the first time anybody has seen Anything from good omens, you know, and we showed some clips, and hearing audiences laugh, um, was kind of amazing. It was
0: like, oh, this it does work. It is they're liking it. They're loving it. It does work. You showed me uh, only a very short clip, but I know the book, and I'm familiar with it. And with with the work you've done, or any. Work or characters I deeply care about. I collected comics from my entire uh, childhood. I still have probably 10,000 polybagged comics that I've refused to get rid of. And every time a comic book movie would be made in my younger years, because they were not done generally very well, I would sort of peek through a crack in my fingers to see how characters would turn out. And it was was always uh, very stressful for me because I had so much invested uh, in many different characters and uh, just I'll give a a thank you to Hugh Jackman for getting uh, Logan and Wolverine right, which was a huge relief and seeing this clip, it, it really gave me the feeling that you'd pulled it off, that it, that it, that it lived up to my experience as a reader and a listener. I think mostly we have. Um,
1: and I think that is a lot of that is casting. Um, Michael Sheen and David Tennant were perfect, and they'd never really been any and anything before, um, because they go up for the same parts, (laughs) because they are very similar actors. And people were like, "Why would you cast them? Why don't you go?" You know, they. It's like casting the same person. You go, well, yeah, it kind of is actually, and it's one of the reasons why it works so well. They have joked about and i'm not sure if they're joking about if ever i write a stage play version of good omens they would go on tour with it and alternate roles each night
0: <laughs> that's a brilliant idea wow i want to uh well first i should say and and we'll put this certainly in the show notes and everywhere else and in the it, people have already heard in the introduction but where where can people learn more about good omens uh that's a really good question. Well, the, you know, one
1: thing that I would recommend you do is read the book. Um, uh, good Omens, the novel by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Uh, it, and, and it won't spoil anything for you with the TV show. There's enough stuff in there that I put in for people who knew the book I, I kind of there are there are Easter eggs in there where only somebody who's read the book will know that something is funny or know why something's happened but there's also things that people who read the book will not be expecting so that's that's the first thing um, YouTube or any Amazon Prime ads have the ad for good omens up the trailer you can go and watch that um, it's a lot talkier than the trailer the trailer is is a lot of it is things going bang, because that's what they like putting in trailers. Um, <laughs> you know, if it were me, I would my trailer would have just been sort of like you know, three minutes of two characters talking. And it's like here you go, here's the trailer. If you like this, you'll like the show. Um, but I think very wisely they put in you know, giant walls of fire and heaven and hell and hellhounds and, and all of the glorious stuff.
0: You mentioned a a word, uh, apprenticeship. Uh, What are the types of things that you learned from Terry or picked up? The biggest thing, looking back on it, that I learned from
1: Terry was a willingness to go forward without knowing what happens. You might know what happens next, but you don't know what happens after that. But it's okay because... You're a grown-up, and you will figure it out. Um, you know, the, the, there's lots of metaphors um, for writing a novel. And George R.R. R. Martin, for example, divides writers into architects and gardeners. And I can be an architect if I have to. But I'd rather be a gardener. I would rather plant the seeds, water them, and figure out what I'm growing as they grow, and then prune it and trim it and, you know, pleach it, whatever I need to do, um, to make something beautiful that appears intentional. But at the end of the day, you have to allow for accidents and randomness and just what happens when things grow. So the joy of good omens really, I mean, the best thing about good omens was having Terry Pratchett as an audience. Cause if I could make Terry laugh, I knew, you know, that, that it's like hitting that bell in, in, you know, hitting the thing in the circus with the hammer. If you, you, Bing the bell at the top.
0: And that's what I did when I could make Terry laugh. He uh, is no longer with us. And uh, I'd be curious to know how he faced mortality. It, because I, I, for instance, have Alzheimer's on both sides of my family. So I've had the opportunity to observe people with Alzheimer's, which is can be very, very difficult. H- how, did he, how did he approach his, his own mortality? Terry made an
1: astonishingly powerful... I mean, he he faced it head-on, and he made uh, two or three incredibly powerful documentaries. One about Alzheimer's. Um, The one that ripped me up emotionally um, was the one about assisted suicide. It was the one about the right to die. Which Terry became a very firm believer in, and made his film as a as a piece of polemic about should you be should you be allowed to turn off should you be allowed to go okay this is the situation I'm in and I'm in this body and I I'm done and uh, you know he followed a man to Switzerland. Where he he went through the end of life process and they turned off the cameras while he did. Um and it was incredibly moving. Terry, the last time I saw him, confided in me very proudly. That he did have the the death cocktail. And uh that it was hidden away, but that it was there for him when he was ready. And I n- knew at that moment he was never going to take it, because Terry had a kind of rear brain Alzheimer's. Memory was basically okay, but, but shapes weren't. The physical world had fallen slightly apart on him, um, you know, he couldn't see things. He couldn't perceive objects. He, he could still think straight, but but all of your spatial recognition, all of your object recognition stuff was failing. And I thought, even if you've got this stuff, you, never, you can't find it. You can't get something from a hidden place. Nobody else is going to get something from a hidden place for you. And, and also... I thought and you've hit you're now actually beyond the point where you ever wanted to be you didn't want to be here you wanted to have stopped four or five months ago but now you're here and if you're here, you're here to the end and indeed a few months later he fell into unconsciousness and A few months after that, he stopped completely. Um, But it was inspiring. It was inspiring watching Terry talk about Alzheimer's, bringing Alzheimer's, which everybody has to deal with one way or the other, into the public consciousness as something that was okay to talk about, not as something slightly shameful that happens to Grandpa. Um and also just talk about the right to die. I talking about it as a, as a human right, and it you know i I really and I understand or you know you can list out to me all of the reasons why it's a bad idea, and look, you know, here's a creepy family, and if they could kill mum for the money they would and right now they've got her in a home, but you know, they they would have killed her and announced that she wanted to do it herself or or whatever. I, I I get all that. But also I get that um the right not to be alive, the right to end it all, the right to go, okay, I've I've come as far as I can in this and and it's okay to stop before Before I become something that is a shallow shadow of who I once was. um, you know that that, that has to be a right too.
0: How does it feel as as such a close friend of his to be able to to share this work that you created together and to have Yeah. really really weird the
1: the um mostly it's wonderful and then sometimes it isn't and um saturday night amazon had taken over a you know 19,000 square foot lot turned it into the garden of earthly delights Um, It has a bookshop in a corner and uh, hairdressers and a giant tree in the middle that serves alcohol. It has wings that if you stand in front of them and activate some kind of Instagram filter, um, or maybe it was a Snapchat filter, will make the wings start to flap. Um, Oh, you know, just filled with wonderfulness and I'm there and the... We have singing nuns and then a Queen cover band come on and, and I'm looking around and there's John Hamm and, and David Tennant and Michael Sheen and all my, my guys from my lovely um, American Gods cast come over and they're hanging out. I'm getting to introduce, it's like introducing your two families and, um, and I was kind of melancholy. Because and I knew that I should just be enjoying it. I knew I should just be going, This is this is magical. This is this is the kind of fun, wonderful thing that you you don't get very often in your life and I should just be exulting in it. And instead I'm just thinking, I wish Terry were here. He would have loved the nuns. He would have <laughs> he would have had a great time with the Queen cover band, and he would have been just you know grumbling to me about tiny details and enjoying it, um, or or taking enormous pleasure in tiny details, and you know having deciding which colour wings he liked having best or whatever. It, he would have loved it, and. He's not around. And then, by the same token, I know Terry well enough to also know the, the way that Terry was built and who Terry was. We probably would never have got to this point had Terry been alive. Because if you're doing something like making a big TV show or something, something this big and this complicated where things can go wrong. Sometimes when things are getting weird or things are going wrong or, you know, the BBC are going a bit mad or whatever, the only thing you can do is just focus on the outcome and just keep going and keep a steady course and so on and so forth. And... I knew Terry well enough and worked with Terry long enough to know that he was absolutely constitutionally incapable of doing that. <laughs> you know, at the point where things, any any one of a dozen places where all we would have to have done is just keep on going and, you know, Terry would have been making the the phone calls to the head of the BBC or the head of Amazon or, you know, you know, telling Jeff Bezos exactly what he thought of him what it was just like no that, that just the wrong thing to do right <laughs> now so there's also that sort of weirdness of going, had Terry been around, we probably would never have got here and getting but getting here was all about making this thing for Terry, which he also wasn't here for, which is why i'm sad, you know so so a a giant interwoven panoply of of strange emotions absolute joy in having made it joy in having made it for terry because um nothing else would have stopped me writing novels for three and a half four years
0: um but that did i think i have to imagine he'd be thrilled to see you in this amazing circus uh just before this piece of work is released to hopefully millions more people who will be impacted by the work. I think, and I think he would have loved,
1: I think he would have loved so much of this, and also being Terry, he would have loved the fact that then people will come and pick up Good Omens, the book, and then they'll go and read Discworld books, and that will make Terry even happier. <laughs> Neil,
0: this has been so much fun. Can't be ninety minutes already. Ninety minutes. That just that that flew. It did. It did. And I I certainly hope it's not the last time we have a chance to have to do it again. We'd we we only just got started. I would really love to. And uh I know we have well, let me not state it that way. Many, many of my fans are your fans. And just as Terry shared his gifts with the world, you continue to share yours and it has an impact. It helped me through some very tough times, was able to transport me, delight me, shock me, scare me, and take me through a whole range of emotions I didn't at the time, even though I had access to. So I want to thank you for making good art and sharing it with the world. You've done a great job. You are so ridiculously welcome. Thank you. And uh, do you have any Closing comments, thoughts, remarks, anything you'd like to say before we wrap up?
1: No, not really. I, I, I you know, I genuinely enjoyed, one, one of the great things about having you as a fan um, is the books arrive from you and they actually get read. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I learn from them because you go off and, and explore parts of things that I'm, Never going to. Um, and, and
0: so I appreciate that too enormously. Thank you so much. And uh, for everybody listening, we will include links to everything we've discussed. Including fountain pens. Including fountain pens. <laughs> this might be the time to buy some stock. <laughs> and uh, everything that came up will be in the show notes, as always, at tim.blog forward slash podcast. You can just search Neil or Gaiman, and it will pop right up. And uh, Neil, once again, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And to everyone listening, until next time, read widely, check out Good Omens, and chat soon. Bye. The coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by Hello Monday, a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team. When I'm facing, say, a challenge at work, considering new career moves, or just trying to sort through my life, of course, like a lot of people, I look to my friends, family, and mentors for support. The kind of advice that tends to stick, though, out of all things they might say or ask, tends to be simple and powerful. For example, I remember when Kyle Maynard, who's been on the podcast, echoed to me a lesson he learned from a very well-known CEO. And that was when you ask people to rank anything from one to 10, including yourself, ask them to remove the number seven. And that means they have to choose between, in some cases, six, which is a barely pass. So that's a no-go or an eight, which is a strong endorsement. So you can use this when asking people to judge work, designs, give you feedback on writing chapters. You can use it with waiters or waitresses in restaurants when asking how much they would recommend a given entree. And it's incredible how much clearer the signal becomes when you just make that one change and remove seven. So along those lines, Hello Monday is a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team filled with this kind of advice, the kind that stays with you, the kind that you can actually use. Each week, Host Jesse Hempel sits down with featured guests, ranging from people like Seth Meyers, host of Late Night with Seth Meyers, and Elizabeth Gilbert, best-selling author of Eat, Pray, Love, to uncover lessons you can apply to your career and to your life. For example, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about relieving creative pressure to get more done, and the way she tells the story is much more detailed, but as she was approaching her follow-up to Eat, Pray, Love, she tried to write, she realized after the fact, when she sat down with the first draft and started to cry, she realized she would tried to write for 6 million people and it just wasn't working. She felt overwhelmed. And instead, she decided to focus on writing it to her 10 closest female friends. And she realized at the time she didn't know how to please millions of strangers, but she did know how to reach those specific 10 friends, which it turns out is exactly what I did after throwing away four early chapter drafts for the four-hour work week. I took a very similar approach. and wrote literally an email draft to two of my closest friends. So this type of stuff really, really works. And you should check it out. So find Elizabeth Gilbert's episode and other episodes from Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Peloton, which I've been using probably for about a year now. Peloton is a cutting edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You can also do on-demand, which is what I do. We'll come back to that. So you don't have to worry about fitting classes into a busy schedule or making it to a studio or gym with a hectic or unpredictable commute. I, for instance, have a Peloton bike right in my master bedroom at home, and it's one of the first things I do many mornings. I wake up, I meditate for a bit, then I knock out a short 20-minute ride in my undies, hard to do that at the gym, take a shower, and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's really convenient and has become something that I look forward to. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other riders across the country on an interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. There are also up to 14 new classes added every day with more than 8,000 classes on demand. And you can pick based on length, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, music, hip hop, rock and roll, or say low impact versus high intensity or interval. You can pick the class structure and style that works for you. And in my case, I quite like Matt Wilpers, and I tend to do on-demand and listen to a lot of and watch many of the same classes over and over, but I'm kind of promiscuous and also enjoy classes from a lot of the other instructors. They have Peloton, an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City with a whole range of styles and personalities, so you can find what you're in the mood for. You also get real-time metrics that you can use to track your performance over time, and that will help I would say catalyze you to beat your personal best. Now, that all sounds good, right? Gamification, yada, yada, yada. I didn't think that it would work for me or in any way incentivize me, but they really 100% hit the nail on the head. I was very, very impressed with how motivating it was. And it worked tremendously to keep me pushing, uh, which quite honestly takes a fair amount. I can get quite lazy, particularly with anything that edges on endurance, which is kind of more than five reps of anything for me. So... Check it out. Discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings the studio experience right to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited-time offer. Go to OnePeloton.com. That's O-N-E, Peloton, P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, at checkout and get $100 off of accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. So get a great workout at home anytime you want. Check it out. Go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIM to get started.